You've just tuned into Beyond Your Past, part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Welcome back to Beyond Your Past. I'm your host, Matt Pappas, certified life coach specializing in overcoming anxiety and trauma recovery. And this podcast is all about helping you move forward from what holds you back. Each week, you'll hear from coaches, clinicians, and advocates who've overcome tremendous odds and are now using their journey to inspire you throughout yours. This is your place to feel validated and encouraged as you take your life back and live free from your past. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Matt right back here from Beyond Your Past. Hope you're all doing well. And today I'm going to do a bit of a different podcast, something I haven't done in quite a while, and that's actually just talk to you guys. Normally, I have guests on here, all of whom are so amazing, and I'm so honored to share their story, to talk with clinicians and coaches and advocates and authors and amazing people who are using their story to inspire you throughout your life's journey, to overcome any type of mental health challenge, to really inspire you to know that the sky's the limit. And that no matter what your past is, no matter what you've been through, there's always hope and you can always reach for the life and for the dreams that you want. The theme of this podcast is always about inspiring you throughout your journey and overcoming trials and tribulations and tough times and, you know, being a survivor of abuse and um, all different types of horrific scenarios and circumstances that not everybody can understand And really only those who have been through it or have been around those that have been through it can really understand exactly what it means to have gone through that and still come out the other side and still keep fighting and fighting. And so, of course, with that theme, I wanted to share something with you today and talk about something that recently happened to me uh, just before uh, Christmas 2017. So as I'm recording this, um, about a month and a half ago or so. And this is a bit of a difficult subject to talk about. only because it's something that uh, really kind of threw me for a loop, stopped me in my tracks for a while, caused me to pause and reevaluate and really kind of figure out exactly what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, where I'm going, and really to take stock of my life and the things that are really important to me. And so whenever you have a very traumatic experience, those feelings generally tend to come up. Um, And especially... If it's something that's brand new, something that blindsides you, something that hits you out of left field, you know, something that you didn't see coming, you know, your life's rolling along, things are going hunky dory, or at least they're just kind of going and you're doing your thing in life, going about your daily business and then bam, something happens and you stop and you're like, okay, everything now changed. And now that everything changed, what am I going to do about it? So before I get into that, um... I'll share a little bit of what my daily life is like, just to kind of give you an idea of how things were up until uh, this life experience, and then how things kind of are now in the wake of that, and in the healing and recovery from that. So as you guys probably know, if you're you're listeners of the show, um, I have a blog called Surviving My Past. That's the blog that started everything um, in my survivor journey. It started my journey... um, (laughs) unbeknownst at the time, towards becoming a life coach and working with trauma survivors and those who are trying to overcome anxiety. So Surviving My Past was originally started to be a therapy blog. And, um, you know, it was a place for me to share my story and write about my feelings, especially early on in my survivor journey. And that was born out of personal journaling and working with a uh, a therapist for quite a while. And so in any event, um, Surviving My Past was born and is now, of course, blossomed in two years later, a full-on survivor advocacy website where other survivors can share their story of overcoming trauma and, and horrific types of abuse and how they are refusing to stay silent and how they want to use their voice and their power to inspire others. So I say that just to let you know that I am a blogger. And then, of course, I'm a podcaster, of course, you know, listening to this and all the other podcasts that I've been doing to date. Um, I really enjoy podcasting. Um, I also, at this point in my life, do have a full-time day job, uh, even though I am a certified life coach and I do work with clients. um, I also um, have a full-time day job that I'm working on transitioning out of and into a role 
uh, full-time out of my current job and into the role full-time as a coach. So I have the day job, and of course I'm also a parent um, and a music lover and, um, you know, just a regular kind of everyday Joe. And so there's a lot of things with that, though, Um, you know, being a blogger and a podcaster, working, being a parent, all the things that you do during the day that really take up a whole lot of your time. And of course, time is at a premium. So there's always something going on, always something that's happening, running around, doing this, doing that. And so, you know, there isn't always a lot of time for self-care. And I know that I preach, quote unquote, um, about taking very good care of yourself. And I do try and always take good care of myself and do a lot of self-care. But just like being human and just like probably anybody else, I struggle with it at times. I don't always take the best care of myself. I don't always slow down and take a break. I don't always get enough rest. Um, when I come down with a sickness or a cold or flu or something, I don't always rest quite as much as I should. I try and power through it because there's so many things going on. And so really, as much as I try and take care of myself, um, you know, sometimes life gets in the way and I have to you know, kind of roll with the punches. And sometimes I don't always stay as cognizant as I should of what's happening around me in terms of, you know, feeling run down and feeling tired and kind of burning the candle at both ends. Um, You know, when you're, when you work and you're trying to launch uh, a business and you've got a lot of side hustles going on and you have labors of love and passionate things that you do um, along with parents, along with being a parent in everyday life, Um, you know, sometimes taking care of yourself just suffers. And, you know, I fully admit that I can always do better at that. And I definitely need to take my own advice. And I actually have been more recently than ever, as you'll see. Um, So I say all that just to kind of give you a glimpse of, you know, how my life normally is in terms of, you know, the advocacy work, the blogging, the podcasting, um, being a co-leader of a DBT skills group in my local area, working on a book, um, of course, being a coach and, you know, everything that goes along with it. So, As I said, um, just before Christmas 2017, things were humming along. I was going about my business, recording podcasts, writing blog posts, doing my life, getting ready for the holidays. And my son, my youngest son, I have three kids. My youngest son, who stays with me, you know, part-time, stays with his mom part-time. He was, um, he came home from school one day complaining that he didn't feel good. And I'm thinking, oh man, you know, here we go right before the holidays. My son's getting sick. So, of course, it turns out that he ended up coming down with a with a pretty nasty chest virus. Um, you know, the hacking cough and the sneezing and the stuffy nose and just being miserable and laid up in bed all the time. So that kept him down for four or five days or so. Um, and, you know, he was pretty miserable. But, uh, you know, like most things, he ended up kicking it without too much of a problem. Um, all the while, of course, me being um, the paranoid, so to speak, um, a parent who was like, oh my God, I can't get sick before Christmas. So I'm following her around with cans of Lysol and following her around with, you know, um, antibacterial wipes, trying to clean everything around him and not touch anything that he touched in an effort to try and avoid the sickness. But inevitably, um, whenever a child or a family member comes home with something, it's not very uncommon for you to get it as well. And of course, several days later, I ended up getting pretty sick and, Uh, You know, I woke up one day not feeling really well, and this ended up being about five days before Christmas of 2017. So, of course, I'm thinking, okay, I've got five days to kick this before the kids come over for the annual Christmas breakfast. And, you know, I have to go to my sister's for the dinner. And, you know, you don't want to be sick over the holiday break and all that kind of stuff. So started pounding all kinds of day quill and night quill and all the usual types of cold medicines you can think of in an effort to kick it. Um, But it really, really hit me hard. It got down into my chest. And as I said, the hacking and the coughing and the horse cough and feeling miserable, really, really weak this time, like more weak than I'd ever felt in quite a while. It had me laid up um, from the Wednesday before Christmas all the way through Christmas to the point where I could barely move. I was doing nothing but drinking ginger ale and drinking orange juice and um, eating jello and things like that, which of course, as you know, I don't know if you're like me, but whenever you get sick, the first thing you reach for is orange juice or ginger ale. And so I was pounding that. And of course, all the cold meds thinking I could knock this out. And so Christmas morning, I still wasn't feeling very well at all, but I knew the kids were coming over my kids and, um, you know, were coming over and my, um, annual tradition of making them breakfast was something that I really knew I wanted to do. So, I found a way to kind of power through it. We had a good time. I was completely exhausted by the time they left, but I was glad I did it. Um, 
And of course, I mean, my kids would have certainly understood if I couldn't go. And, you know, in hindsight, it's probably not the smartest thing to try and power through it when you're that sick. But being the parent, sometimes you do things in an effort to see your kids and it's maybe not the smartest thing health wise. But hey, I enjoy seeing my kids and I figured, you know what, I'll power through it for the morning and then I'll rest the rest of the day, which is what I did. And so the rest of that week after Christmas, I was still feeling pretty weak, um, wondering, am I, you know, am I ever going to kick this thing? And so finally, a couple of days before New Year's, um, I started to feel a little bit better. You know, I could walk. Um, I was able to swallow a little better. The coffin had kind of gone down and I was thinking, OK, I finally kicked this. I'm on the way to feeling better. Things are going cool. Um, so New Year's Eve comes along. And, you know, I felt pretty okay, a little weak, but pretty okay. New Year's Day comes along, I'm feeling okay, no big deal. I mean, I'm not a big partier. Like, I did that back in the day, going out and, you know, doing the party thing with your friends and staying up all night and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I'm not much of that right now. So I just had a quiet uh, New Year's Day and stuff and, you know, not really doing anything, but just trying to rest because I knew that I had to go back to, you know, kind of my regular routine, um, you know, in just another day or two. So... Um, you know, New Year's Day comes and goes and I'm feeling pretty okay, but I'm feeling a little bit anxious for some reason. Like something isn't quite right. It's not just the weakness that something feels a little funny, but I can't quite put my finger on it. So I'm figuring, ah, you know, it's just residual effects of this chest virus and the excitement of the holidays and, you know, the overwhelming part of the holidays and being a survivor and all that stuff. So I didn't put much stock in it and I figured it'll just go away. So I wake up for work, um the next morning and I'm thinking, Hmm, I still don't really feel right. You know, I'm feeling a little more anxious than usual. I'm still feeling a little queasy and just there's that, that little thing inside me that said something's not quite right, but I got up, you know, got ready for work and went. And as the day got on, things just started to take a downhill turn. I started to feel really, really weak, um, really sweaty, uh, very, very anxious, very uneasy. Um, and you know, it wasn't that I couldn't quite put my finger on it, to be honest with you. I, I thought maybe it was something to do with work, something to do with the sickness. As I said, I couldn't figure it out, but I came home from work uh, and immediately went to bed like right after work and slept the whole night, you know, well, and I say slept um, in quotes because I tossed and turned and was feeling anxious and laid in bed all night and kind of slept off and on. But, you know, I, and I, so suffice it to say, I didn't do much. And so the next morning I woke up, couldn't even talk. Like I felt like I had laryngitis. I felt extremely weak to the point where I could barely move enough to even like pick up my phone to call in and, you know, let my boss know that I wasn't going to be able to be in there. And I was thinking to myself, what in the world is going on here? And so true to form, I took some more cold medicine thinking maybe it was something else going on. Um, And I just tried to rest and, you know, relax. I played some soft music. I played some ambient sounds, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, laid in bed, relaxed, drank a lot of fluids, all the things you're supposed to be doing, you know, when you get sick. But again, something in my, in the back of my head and my body was like, something's not right, Matt, something is not right. And so the next day didn't feel any better. Same thing. Continued to feel worse, continued to feel worse. And then the day after that, um, I went to the, I started to feel, and, and this is where things really started to kind of go a little sideways even more. Um, where I woke up and I had a lot of problems trying to speak. And as you can tell right now, um, if you've, if you've listened to the podcast before, my voice does sound a little bit different. Uh, you'll notice in my speech is a little bit different. Some words and phrases that I'm using, um, maybe sound a little bit different. Uh, you know, you'll notice I talk, uh, with a bit of a lisp, uh, here and there. Um, and I woke up like that. And it wasn't that like one side of my face was droopy. It was both sides. It was almost like I was feeling like I had an allergic reaction to something because my mouth and my lips felt numb and my cheeks felt numb and, you know, my hands were kind of tingling. My feet were kind of tingling and I couldn't figure out what it was. I hadn't eaten much really in like the last two weeks. I mean, you know, I mean, nothing that was really out of the ordinary that I thought would have been any kind of allergic reaction, especially within the last couple of days. But, but it seemed to be like it was some kind of a reaction to something because of the way that I felt so numb. Um, and of course I had the, I had the, the feelings and the thoughts racing through my head. Oh my God, it's a stroke. It's a stroke. And, um, you know, I also started feeling like I had some pains in the back of my head, like really, really sharp pains, guys. I mean, stuff that would like, like pretty much cause you to sit down immediately or fall down where you were. Um, like sharp pains from, from, from ear to ear in the back of my head only. 
And so I'm thinking, what in the world is this? So I started Googling some stuff on my phone when I was laying there in bed. And I came across something that was, that was called tension headaches. I thought, well, you know, tension headaches, that can be caused by stress and anxiety. That can be caused by lack of sleep, poor posture. I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't always have the best posture at my desk at work. Um, you know, I don't always get enough sleep. Um, you know, I have been feeling anxious lately, so I thought, well, maybe that was it. And then I started doing research on trying to figure out why my speech was kind of slurry and why my, my face felt so numb. And, of course, one of the first things that comes up is, is you know, a possible allergic reaction. But I kept thinking, what is going on? Like, I haven't drank anything out of the ordinary. I haven't ate anything out of the ordinary. You know, did I get bit by something in my sleep? You know, did I suddenly have an allergic, you know, reaction to, you know, I don't know, my cats or something? So, like, all this stuff's going through my head. So I called the doctor and got in uh, within a few hours for an emergency appointment. So I went in there. The first thing she did was check for a stroke because she saw that my face was was, was kind of numb and not really moving. Um, My speech was very slurred. Um, so she did, you know, the eye movement test, the tongue test where you have to move your tongue back and forth. She had me stand up, um, you know, and try and push on either, either shoulder to see if I would kind of tip over to see how stable I was. She checked the grip in my hands, you know, pushing down on my feet and that type of thing. And, you know, everything seemed to be mostly in order, um, except for my speech. And so she thought too, it might be an allergic reaction. So she was thinking, well, let's put you on some Zyrtec for a little bit. And then if that doesn't work better by tomorrow, then I'm going to write you a prescription for prednisone. So I'm thinking, uh, well, okay. And, and I'll tell you this too. Like I've never been on prednisone. I, I, I know I never had allergies. So I'm thinking all this is, is a possibility because I never had any experience with it before. So I'm thinking, well, maybe it's something that just started. And of course, I mean, I trust my doctor very much. I've been seeing her for my God, as long as I can remember. So I started taking the medication she prescribed that day. Went home, didn't feel any better the rest of the day, continued to feel worse. Speech continued to get worse. I mean, I mean, like, um, as different as I may sound right now, guys, like, it was a hundred times worse than this. It was, it was I was barely audible. Um, feeling, again, really anxious, still couldn't shake this feeling that something was going on. Feeling very weak in my legs um, and in my feet, um, almost to the point where it was, it was difficult to walk. And so it didn't get any better that night. The headaches continued. Um... I had been taking uh, Excedrin migraine because we had thought that, you know, the tension headaches were possibly either that or migraines coming on, you know, from stress headaches or something. So I was taking that and that, that would alleviate the headaches for literally about an hour and then they would come back. And I knew that it wasn't sustainable for me to be popping Excedrin migraine all the time. Right. You know, so I'm taking all this stuff and nothing's working. I woke up the next morning. I'm like, something's not right. I could barely even talk anymore. Still extremely weak. Um, so I went to urgent care, which, you know, I guess, um, for those that don't know, an urgent care is kind of like a, it's like a mini emergency room. Um, you know, where I live there, there are a lot of them that are available from like 7am to like 8pm, you know, seven days a week. And it's for, you know, general types of cuts and bruises, broken arms, flu, sickness, you know, things that you don't really want to go to the emergency room for. So I went to my local urgent care and I saw them. They did all the same tests because they thought maybe it was a stroke as well. They thought it also could be Bell's palsy. And um, I'm thinking, okay, my guy, what is Bell's palsy? So I was doing research. They were explaining to me uh, what it was. And I had never really heard of Bell's palsy before. I mean, I think I had heard the term, but it kind of scared me to death. And, and the the urgent care doctor kind of explained what it was. And essentially, in a nutshell, and if you want to learn more, you can certainly just Google Bell's palsy. But and that's B-E-L-L-S-P-A-L-S-E-Y. But essentially, it's something that can come on from a recent viral infection to where it causes one side of your face to droop and your speech to slur and to feel a lot of muscle weakness, which is everything that I had. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've got Bell's palsy. But he wasn't totally sure that that was it. He thought it could be an allergic reaction as well. So they gave me a shot of steroids and gave me um, a prescription for prednisone. So... Now, keep this in mind here as I go along because this was a turning point um, of what was to come. So, um, no, now this was, I believe, on a Wednesday. Actually, I believe it was Thursday. It was Thursday, January 4th when this happened. So, you know, they gave me the shot and they're saying, okay, you you should start to feel some some positive uh, turnaround. You know, start start to feel a little bit better um, within several hours, maybe 12 hours at the most, definitely by the next morning, you should start to feel some significant change and feel better. 
Um, so I'm like, okay, cool. So maybe, you know, so I went home and I started doing some research on Bell's palsy and, um, you know, the treatment for it and what it was. And so I'm thinking, okay, finally somebody figured out what was going on with me. All the while, for the rest of the day, things still didn't get any better. I kept thinking and, and trying to, to rationalize what was going on. I was doing more research. Um, I was looking at myself in the mirror. I couldn't smile. Like I had really guys like no muscle control in my face whatsoever. Um, I was unable to smile, unable to laugh, unable to formulate words much at all. Again, much, much worse than what you, you hear right now. I found myself unable to taste. So my tongue really wasn't working quite right. And upon examination and urgent care, like they didn't see that I was really swollen. But they can definitely tell that, that there was no muscle control there. That's one of the reasons why they thought it might be Bell's palsy. But they weren't really sure, as I said, because Bell's palsy normally only affects one side of the face. And for me, it was both sides. So they were kind of stumped, and they said, kind of keep an eye on things. If it gets any worse, make sure that you call 911 or go to the ER, um, you know, if things don't improve within the next couple of days. So back to that day. They, they continued to get worse, as I said. And, you know, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was up the whole night. The headaches were still coming. Again, still couldn't taste anything. Um, and didn't really know why I couldn't taste anything. It was like the taste buds in my tongue weren't working. So everything was very, very bland. Um, it was hard to eat or drink because stuff would just run, I mean, you know, food or drink would just run, run out of my mouth. You know, I couldn't drink out of a straw because I couldn't get any suction on it. If I ate something with a spoon or a fork, I had to be very careful that it wouldn't just fall out of my mouth. I mean, you know, it sounds a little funny, I guess, but that's really what was happening. And, you know, for somebody who really had never been that sick ever, this was kind of scary for me. In fact, it was really scary. I mean, I've had the flu... You know, I've had the bad cold, but generally speaking, I haven't had a whole lot of physical types of ailments in my life. I've generally been pretty healthy, again, for the common cold of the flu that comes around. And, you know, I also take a lot of supplements, vitamin C, echinacea, all the, all the things that, <clears throat> you know, are recommended to help boost your immune system. So, you know, I've been fortunate in that way that I haven't been sick all that often and certainly not this bad ever. So... Things continue to get worse the next day. Of course, I still haven't been back to work yet. Um, you know, I went back to work the day after New Year's, and then I had been off a week before for vacation. And so I was back one day, and I had been off since. So I'm calling into my boss, letting him know. And at this point, I'm at the point where I can't really talk on the phone. So I'm texting him and letting him know, hey, you know, I, I, I can't come in. Um, I'm having to reschedule podcasts because I can't speak. Um, I'm having to put blog posts to the side because I don't have the energy to type. I don't have the energy to edit and, you know, find pictures and do all the stuff that that comes with writing a post on surviving my past. And, um, you know, I had to reschedule um, lots of other things that were going on, other classes and whatnot, um, because I, I like I physically couldn't really move or do much of anything. So as the, as the week went on, things continued to get worse. I was on the prednisone um, and I just wasn't feeling any better. Um, couldn't figure out what was going on. And finally, Sunday morning, Saturday night, excuse me, Saturday night, I was laying in bed and I said, if I'm not better by Sunday morning, I'm going to the ER. And, and I remember, as I said, I had never spent any time in a hospital ever as a patient in my entire life. Um, I mean, I had my wisdom teeth pulled, uh, you know, a long time ago, but I mean, that was outpatient. I'd never spent overnight in a hospital. I had never been in an ER as a patient. Uh, the most time I ever spent in any of those things was visiting other people. So Sunday morning comes around, haven't slept much again. Um, haven't been able to eat much. I said, okay, you know what? Enough's enough. I can't wait any longer. So I drove myself to the local ER. Fortunately on a Sunday morning, and this would have been about January 7th, Sunday morning. Um, there wasn't really busy. So I walked in, there were a couple of people there, but I was able to be seen right away. I told the, you know, the, the nurse there what was going on. She took my vitals, did all the initial stuff, you know, got my insurance card, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there, and um, so she, then after a couple of minutes of going through all the preliminary check-in, I get taken back to uh, an ER bed. And I'm just sitting there, and I have nurses coming in, and they're taking your vitals and asking me questions. And, um, of course, I'm sitting here a while the while, not really knowing what's going on, kind of feeling kind of panicky because I'm completely alone. Um, so I texted my, my brother and my sister and my and, and uh, some other people, including my mother, and told them that, you know, hey, I'm checking myself into the hospital this morning. Something's still not quite right with what's going on. Um, you know, just, just wanted to let you know. Uh, of course, they, they were all in church. 
So they all came. Um, they, they all left church early to come in and see me. Uh, my my daughter and her husband came in. My my uh, middle son came in, and then he went to also pick up my youngest son a little bit later. So I did have people there, fortunately. But initially, for that first hour or so, I was alone and scared. I mean, I, I'll tell you guys, like I'm 46. I was sitting in the ER. I was scared. I had no idea what was going on. I got people coming in taking vitals all over the place, asking me a hundred questions. I can't really talk. So I'm trying to formulate words that I can't figure out how to formulate. So I'm having to talk really slow or write things down. I got doctors and nurses coming in, all asking me the same questions, doing the examinations, doing the same tests, thinking it was a stroke. And, you know, I let them know that, you know, I had been on prednisone because they had thought that it was Bell's palsy. And then all of a sudden, when I said that, a couple of doctors came in and they started doing examination. They said I may be one of the rarest cases that they, they've ever seen um, in this area and really in the country because they were initially thinking that I had Bell's palsy that was affecting both sides of my face, which is extremely, extremely rare. I mean, we're talking like one in like a million people that might get this where it's on both sides of your face. So I had doctor after doctor. I'm telling you guys, it had to be like 10, 15 doctors coming in all asking me the same questions because they all wanted to see what a guy looked like with Bell's palsy on both sides of his face. All doing the same test again. All, you know, as I said, just really kind of freaking me out here. I mean, they were very nice. Most of them were nice for the most part. Um, but still, you know, here I am sitting here trying to, you know, worried of what's going on. Doctors and nurses coming in all asking me the same thing. I even had one of them ask me if they could videotape me to use for future training to see what somebody with Bell's palsy on both sides of the face looked like. And they called it bilateral Bell's palsy, by the way. Yeah, so I'm sitting there going through all this, kind of getting panicky, wondering what's going on. Uh, The doctor orders uh, a CAT scan. He also orders um, an EKG and an echo and an MRI and um, uh, a uh, ultrasound of my carotid uh, artery and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. So all these tests, along with a full blood panel. So, uh, you know, I had a, uh, a phlebotomist come in and, you know, take like five or six vials of blood out of my arm, which, you know, I'm not good with needles anyway, but I thank God, thank the Lord that he was very good. Like I barely felt it. Uh, he was very cool about it as well because, because he knew he, he could tell I was kind of freaked out. And I'll tell you something else, guys, before I continue, I told the doctors and the nurses that I had PTSD. Um, I told them that up front. I said, you know, due to, due to some childhood trauma, I am diagnosed with PTSD and complex trauma, so please be mindful of that when you're working around me, when you're talking around me, the things that you say, um, and, you know, just, you know, really kind of keep that in mind, and they were, you know, most of them really were very understanding that, but with that, the nurses more than the doctors, but the nurses, you know, thankfully the nurses were more cognizant of that, Um, you know, doctors just tend to say whatever they're going to say, but the nurses were at least, uh, you know, very, very nice about it, so... So, you know, I'm laying there in bed all day long in, in the ER. People are kind of coming and going, um, checking in on me, seeing how I'm doing. Um, and I'm getting these tests. So far, all the tests are negative. The EKG is great. The echo is great. The CAT scan is fine. You know, there's no problems with my brain. All the blood work is coming back fine, except for some high blood pressure, which I had already known. I'd been on blood pressure medication for quite a while, and it was in check. Um, but it was definitely elevated because... Um, you know, partially because of being sick and being in the hospital. Um, but that was, that was really the only major kind of concern that they were really worried about, you know, at least through the blood panel, um, because everything else came back negative. So they were like, well, Mr. Pappas, they said they can't really figure out exactly what it is. We still think it could be, uh, you know, Bell's palsy, but we're not sure yet. So we want to keep you overnight. And like immediately my heart sunk and I kind of went into a panic of, Oh my God, they're going to admit me. I'm going to have to stay here. What's going on? What's going to happen? I've heard all these horror stories and I kind of started to get panicky. You know, my, my hands were sweaty. Uh, I started to shake a little bit and I'm like, Oh man, can't you just give me a shot and I can go home? Like literally I'm like, give me a shot, give me a pill, give me something. Let me get the hell out of here. And they were like, no, we're just not really sure what it is yet. And we don't want to let you go because we just don't really understand. Um, you know, we don't have enough data yet to make a safe diagnosis that it really is Bell's palsy. So after staying in the, or excuse me, so after learning all this and kind of sitting in my own panic for quite a while, um, like I started to pray. I started to pray. I'm like, God, whatever's going on, please help me. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a believer, so it's not like, you know, I was just sitting there all of a sudden praying for no reason, but 
you know, I, I was scared. And so I just really started to was thinking, okay, what can I do? How am I going to deal with this? What's going to happen? Um, and w- when they said that, that they were going to admit me, um, you know, my daughter and my son were still there. Excuse me, my daughter and son-in-law were still there. And my um, middle son and youngest son were there. So all three of my kids were there, but nobody else was at the time. So when they said this, um, of course, it didn't happen right away. It took another couple of hours for them to get me a room and, you know, go through all the check-in process and all everything that goes with it. And then they finally started to, they, they, they came in and said, we got you a room. And, uh, you know, it's going to be in room 204. So they started to wheel me up there. My kids grabbed up all my stuff. And wouldn't you know it, right then the fire alarm goes off at the hospital, guys. Like, I'm telling you, you cannot make this stuff up. The fire alarm goes off. The guy, the, the nurse who was pushing me, leaves me in the hallway with my kids, grabs a fire extinguisher, and runs away. Two nurses who just happened to get out of the elevator before the, the, the alarm started were standing there with me, wondering what was going on. And they're like, um, are you okay? And I'm like, I don't really know, but, you know, I'm here. So, as it turns out, there wasn't a fire. It was a water main break that somehow tripped a fire alarm in the hospital. In any event, so, but I ended up, um, you know, finally getting to my room after about another 20 minutes of waiting in the hallway, freezing, because the hallways are always colder than your room. So, they get me to my room, and thank the Lord, it was a private room, guys. Like, I actually got a private room, a small private room. Um, I wasn't expecting it. Um, The hospital wasn't very busy, I guess, at the time, and there were plenty of rooms in that wing. So, thank goodness I had a private room. Um, and I was going to have to at least stay the night until they ran some more tests in the morning and they wanted to run the MRI cause they couldn't run the MRI on Sunday, um, because they didn't have staff on there on the Sunday. So, so I had, you know, my kids stay with me for a while. My mom came in to visit me. Um, my brother and sister, uh, came in, excuse me, my brother and sister-in-law came in to visit. Um, and again, I, I didn't put anything on social media really. Um, I didn't put anything on my Facebook to, you know, you know, my, my personal page. I didn't really let anybody know what was going on. Um, I don't normally put a lot of private things in terms of my own personal life and health on my social media. Um, you know, I'm more than willing to talk about my, my survivor journey and healing from trauma and everything, but I don't just, I, I don't do a lot with Facebook, um, on, on, on my personal account much. I just don't. So I didn't really say anything to anybody. Um, you know, I texted a couple of friends. That was it. So here I am trying to figure out what's going on, thinking I have, um, you know, um, Bell's palsy, stuck in a hospital. I got nurses coming in every hour doing vitals. I've got people coming in every, you know, taking blood from me, um, you know, to run more tests, trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, they started the, uh, the IV um, that was in my arm was still there. And so I was pretty much just kind of laying around waiting, um, spent pretty much of a sleepless night, just watching TV in the hospital bed, um, not, not able to do much, still very weak, unable to, like, I couldn't do much on my phone. Um, and I noticed too, that when I got in the hospital, my eyes started to get a little bit blurry. My vision was a little weak. It was very watery. My eyes were watery and itchy uh, to the point where I couldn't be around bright light. So my room was dark all the time. Uh, you know, I kept the lights off, which also meant that I couldn't stare at my phone screen for very long, right? Like I couldn't stare at my screen much because the, it hurt my eyes. My my left eye especially would itch and water uh, from the glare. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of something new that I couldn't figure out what was, what was going on either. So all these symptoms are just coming and coming and coming. I can't figure out what's happening. And I'm getting more and more worried. And um, the doctor comes in, you know, the doctor that had been seeing me, the main doctor, came in and said that the next day on Monday that they were going to run the MRI and run, uh, you know, another uh, scan of my carotid artery to make sure it wasn't a stroke and all this stuff. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, neither of these are really going to hurt because, you know, again, I said, I hate needles. So I'm thinking, all right, I can survive both of these until I realized that the MRI wasn't enclosed and I'm a bit claustrophobic guys. So this had freaked me out to the point where, you know, the CAT scan was, was open Um, and it was only about literally two or three minutes of just sitting there very still while they scanned my head, you know, scanned my brain and didn't find anything. So the MRI, they said was going to take about 20 to 25 minutes and it was in an enclosed, you know, I mean, if you ever had an MRI that's enclosed, you know what they're like. It's like this big circle that, that they kind of, you know, that, that, that they wheel you inside and then it's very noisy in there you know, all this clanking and banging around. And they say that they're going to play music for you, but you can't hear the music. And they offered to me for me to have headphones on, but 
the two parts that were supposed to stabilize my head, I couldn't wear the headphones and still have my head stabilized. So all I could do was just wear like foam earplugs. So couldn't have any earbuds in or anything. And realizing that as I'm going through all this, you know, heart monitors on and everything else going on, that this is going to be about 20 minutes to 25 minutes of being completely still in an enclosed area. And all I could do was close my eyes. I couldn't do anything else. Couldn't move. And so me being claustrophobic, I let them know that I was, but that I was going to try it. So they gave me like a little button to hold on to that if I panicked, they would immediately wheel me out. So they wheeled me in. I closed my eyes. I started praying. I started thinking. I started meditating. Um, doing a lot of mindfulness meditation. Amazingly enough, I was able to get through that MRI and come out and um, really just pretty okay, to be honest with you. I mean, I I was feeling very anxious the whole time I was in there. I mean, I I was really anxious, but I made it through. And I was feeling pretty good about myself that I was able to make it through. So they wheeled me back to the room and I was waiting for the results. And, you know, several hours later, the doctor came back and they were like, well, the MRI is clean. There's nothing wrong. Uh, the, the, the scan of your carotid artery looks great. Nothing's wrong there. Can't figure out what it is. Still thinking maybe it's Bell's palsy, but the doctor said, there's a potential that it might be something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I said, what the hell is that? Like, what is Guillain-Barre syndrome? And the reason he said that is because a lot of times Guillain-Barre does affect both sides of the face. Um, it also affects the weakness and the nerves in your feet and in your extremities, uh, and really throughout your entire body. And to give you a little synopsis, Guillain-Barre is a rare disease, is a rare disease, a rare syndrome that affects about 1% of the population in the U.S. every year. And it's where your body's immune system attacks your nerves and it damages uh, the myelin, which, which surrounds and kind of coats your nerves. It's like a sheath around your nerves. It's called myelin. Uh, and of course, if you just Google Guillain-Barre, G-U-I-L-L-A-I-N, B-A-R-R-E syndrome, you can see, you know, there's diagrams there on WebMD and, you know, Google and kind of gives you an idea of what it is. But it's very common that that you get Guillain-Barre for those that do get it after a significant virus, you know, and I had that really nasty chest virus. And this made a lot more sense than what the Bell's palsy diagnosis did because of the fact that I had so much weakness in my legs and, you know, my feet were kind of tingling now and then, and my eyes were watering and my eyes wouldn't close, which is something else I forgot to mention too, is that my eyes didn't close the whole way guys. And actually to, to, to this day right now, as I'm recording this, they still don't. So when your eyes don't close the whole way, you can't blink properly. So your eyes get dry. So therefore they tend to water. And also because you have a lack of muscle control in your face, then, um, you know, your eyes also can't blink properly either. So you're getting dry eyes, itchy eyes, watery eyes. And of course that, that affects your ability to focus It affects your ability to deal with bright light and glare, um, all that kind of stuff. So everything seemed to point to Guillain-Barre, but there's only one way to test for it. And that is to get a spinal tap or a spinal puncture. And so when the neurologist came in a little bit later and said, it's a possibility that you may have Guillain-Barre, but I'm not sure yet. And so she talked to me about what it was. And she said, the only way to test is to do a spinal tap. And I that went through the roof, guys. Like I was sitting there panicking, going, oh, my God, a spinal tap. I've heard about these things. I've heard about the pain and, you know, the horrible, you know, potential side effects and, and, and the potential things that can go wrong. And I told the doc, I said, isn't there any other way to test for it? And no, the only way to test for Guillain-Barre is for them to do a spinal puncture where they take some fluid out of the base of your spine. And if it has this certain protein in it, then that means that it's Guillain-Barre. And so... She said, so we're going to do that the next morning. And this was, of course, Tuesday morning. Um, And they said, okay, so they're going to schedule it. Uh, They didn't tell me what time yet. And they said that they were going to come and do it in my room. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're going to come and do it in my room. Are you kidding me? So I spent the entire rest of the day worried, panicking, trying to do research, and then realizing doing research was not a good idea because I didn't want to see what was coming. Like, I really, really didn't because I already had a bad idea of what it was and I didn't want to make things worse by trying to research it and panicking even more. So I decided I was just going to sit there and just kind of deal with it. So I meditated, I prayed, I talked to some family about it. Um, and I just kind of sat there and just for the rest of the day and the rest of the night, just trying to figure out how I was going to get through this. Needless to say, I didn't sleep much at night and partly because of that, but also because when you're in a hospital, you don't sleep anyways. Like there's nurses coming in, always taking your vitals. You've got people coming in, taking blood, people coming in to check on you. So 
even if you do manage to fall asleep, you don't sleep very often, very long. So I'm sitting there in this hospital room all night long and all throughout the next morning, I can't eat anything. All I can do is drink some water, worrying about the spinal tap. Finally, they come and get me and they say, okay, it's time. So they take, and I'm like, wait a minute, aren't you doing it here? And they said, no, we're, we're going to have a radiologist do it. I'm like, um, okay, why is that? And they said, I don't know. I'm just here to take you down. You can ask the doctor the questions when you get there. And I was like, oh my God, great. What's going on? You know, why, why am I the special snowflake? Why do I have to go to radiology? And as it turns out, it's probably better that I did. But in any event, they're wheeling me down there. I had been alone all morning again. And so I got down there. The doctor explained to me what he was going to do. If you're like a little squeamish about this, I apologize. I'll give you a little trigger warning. Uh, You can pause it and maybe fast forward, you know, like a minute in this podcast. I'll give you like a little brief description of what the spinal tap was. Um, So again, just a little trigger warning for you. But essentially what what happened was that I laid on on my stomach on this long table and they used um, a machine to be able to pinpoint on my spine exactly where they were going to do the procedure. And... Um, you know, of course, you know, the doctor's sitting there telling me, well, there's a rare chance this could happen. You know, you could be paralyzed and that could happen. You could get an infection. And I'm like, dude, you're killing me here. Like, you know, didn't you read my chart? I said, I'm already freaking out as to what's going on. I've got PTSD. I've got complex trauma. And, you know, you know, now you're telling me all these things that could, but probably won't happen, but you're not sure trying to stay calm, trying to do meditation, trying to not get overwhelmed. And he explains to me how he's going to use this machine to kind of look you know, to pinpoint where, where, where he needs to do the procedure. And then he's going to take a small needle, insert it into the lower base of my spine and draw fluid. And he said the whole procedure takes about 15 minutes or so. And he said, you know, first we'll numb you up with the local so you don't feel it as much. And I'm like, oh, great, as much, right? Like, are you kidding me? So fortunately, I was able to have my, my, my phone there with my earbuds. So I put on some calming, relaxing music. Um, I said a prayer and I said, okay, go ahead. So... Once they found the spot that they were going to, to do the procedure, he said, okay. And so they, they, they numbed me with a local, which, oh my God, you know, it did not feel good. You know, it did not feel good at all. The burning of, of the, of the local anesthetic was pretty bad to be honest with you. And I started to feel a little nauseous where I'm like, I'm okay. Just, you know, so after they, after they numbed me, they let me rest for about five minutes to kind of get my composure again. And then they started the procedure. Well, guys, that's when I about went through the roof. As soon as they inserted the needle, Um, I immediately turned pale white, lost all color, started sweating. My temperature spiked. Um, I started to like kind of lose consciousness and fade out a little bit. And, you know, they kept tapping me, you know, you know, Hey Matt, Matt, are you okay? Matt, wake up. And they realized, you know, like, and when they, they said that when they put their hand on my head that I was burning up. Um, so they got immediately got a bunch of ice packs, put them on the back of my neck, on my forehead. They put ice packs, you know, on my wrists um, and, you know, a cold uh, washcloth on my face to try and get my temperature down. And so I sat there for the next 10, 15 minutes, almost, uh, almost unable to move. They, they, like I had literally gone through about three or four um, cold washcloths and two ice packs, two separate ice packs um, to try and get my temperature down. And by the time they were done, I had nearly, again, as I said, like I, I, I could barely move, um, I was barely conscious, but they said that I made it through. Everything went great. They were able to get three vials of fluid, which is what they needed. And so they said, oh, they let me lay there for a minute. I still wasn't feeling any better. Um, I was still nearly passed out. So I, they wheeled me back to my room, they said, and apparently my mom was there um, and some other people, but I was pretty much out of it to the point where I'm almost unconscious. And I laid there in bed uh, in my hospital room pretty much completely out of it for, I don't know how long it had to be at least an hour. I'm guessing. Uh, when I woke up, I had some visitors there and, and apparently my boss had stopped in, uh, you know, the boss of my day job had stopped in and to check on me. I had no idea. Didn't really realize I was completely out of it. And when I woke up, you know, I was really groggy. Um, just really, really kind of out of it feeling like I was glad it was over. I felt so relieved, but I just felt really, really like extremely weak. You know, I hadn't eaten anything anyway, so I was really thirsty. Um, and but other than that, like I was just, I I I pretty much couldn't move, guys, for like several hours. Um, not that I was not that I wasn't allowed to move. I was just so weak. And so, after that procedure was over, later that evening, the 
neurologist came in and said, Matt, you've got Guillain-Barre. We know for sure. And I said, um, okay, now what? So, and I asked her, I said, are you absolutely positively sure? And she said, without a doubt, it's Guillain-Barre. We can tell because as soon as we checked the spinal fluid, the protein was there immediately, which means that's the only, you know, that's the only way to check for it. They knew that's what it was. And so they said the treatment for this is, um, IV IG fluids. Basically what happens with Guillain-Barre is that, you know, as I said, the immune system attacks your nerves. Like basically your immune system kind of goes haywire. And after it's done attacking, you know, the viral infection, it goes nuts, so to speak, and goes after. So it goes after your nerves. And as I said, you know, it, it, uh, deteriorates and destroys the myelin, which, which is the coating, the sheath that protects your nerves. And when that happens, of course, you lose control of your face. You get very weak. You get the tingly, weak feeling in your extremities and your legs and your arms. Um, but the rare thing was for me was that the, um, the symptoms for me were that it was mostly affecting my lower body only and my face. You know, my hands were a little bit tingling, but not too much. But normally with Guillain-Barre, it starts at your feet and works its way up. And the worst case of scenarios of Guillain-Barre is that it can be paralyzing to the point where you're like, you, like you can't move, you can't walk you, and uh, you end up being put on a ventilator for, you know, sometimes a week or more until your body is able to recover from it. And for me, the saving grace was that, remember when I told you that uh, when I had gone to the urgent care, they gave me a shot of steroids and put me on prednisone. That's what saved me from getting worse because the prednisone had actually been able to kind of keep the progression in check and keep it from getting worse to the point where I would not have been able to move or breathe and would have had to been on a ventilator and would have lost all muscle control and would have been and you know, all these things. So by going to the urgent care and getting on prednisone, that actually saved me from it being a whole lot worse than it already even was. So, you know, as, so, you know, as I said, uh, the, the, the neurologist told me that the treatment was IV IG fluids. Um, and that that was a normal course of action and that the only other treatment option available was a blood transfusion, but that normally, of course, they, they go the route of the, um, uh, antibody treatment through the IV first to see if that helps. And then if necessary, then the blood transfusion would be the other option. But, um, she said, of course, we're going to start with the IVIG first. Um, and that's basically just me sitting there with a bag of fluids getting pumped into my arm twice a day for the next five straight days. So that night, in the middle of the night, they started with two bags of this treatment. And basically, they they just you know, you know really much. It's not really much to it in terms of complications, um, because it's really just an IV bag. But there are side effects that they had to watch for, you know, numbness, um, <clears throat> a lot more weakness, you know, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, things like that that can happen with this treatment because it's such a high dosage of antibodies, and so. They, they take your vitals literally every 20 minutes while you're getting the treatment. And the treatment can take anywhere from a couple of hours to several hours, depending on how fast the IV drip goes. So I got doctors, so I got nurses in there every 20 minutes taking my vitals, watching me through, through the first couple of bags to see how I would tolerate this. Meanwhile, again, still can't talk, trying to communicate with doctors and nurses, still can't taste anything, eyes are watery, legs and feet are weak, now, and everything else is still going on here, unable to really eat much because my tongue and my lips don't work very well. Um, so everything is just really frustrating. But at least I thought that finally, 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 they knew what was going on. They had a real diagnosis and this was a treatment. And, you know, I asked her point blank. I'm like, is this fatal? Is this going to kill me? And she said, no, she said, it's only extremely, extremely rare that Guillain-Barre is ever anything that's fatal. Normally, um, these treatments work. And the recovery time is a long time. It's going to take up to six months. For most people, within six months, you start to feel, quote unquote, normal again, more like yourself. But with these treatments, you should start to see a little bit of improvement by the end of the week. So that's why you have to do five doses of them twice a day. So she said, so she said, you're going to be here for the rest of the week. Um, You know, there's a chance that, you know, that you may be able to get out a little bit early, but it really depends on how, um, you know, the treatments go, how you tolerate them and really just, you know, kind of get comfortable and relax because you're going to be here for a while kind of thing. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like I'm going to miss all this time from work. I'm going to miss working with clients. I'm going to miss blogging. I'm going to miss podcasting. 
I'm going to miss coaching. Like, you know, I'm going to miss seeing my kids and all this stuff. And, and, you know, like I felt helpless guys. I felt helpless and scared. And while I did have people come in and visit me, you know, from time to time, whenever they could, which I was very grateful for, I spent the rest of that week sitting in a hospital bed alone with my thoughts. Um, just really kind of wondering and really kind of having to take a step back and slow down. So, you know, for the last two weeks, I had really not done much of anything. Wasn't blogging, wasn't podcasting, wasn't writing, wasn't working, wasn't coaching, wasn't doing any of my classes or anything. I'm just pretty much helpless at the mercy of this Guillain-Barre syndrome and wondering what in the world's going on. How am I going to handle this? So every day, twice a day, as I said, they would come in. They would they would run me through two bags of the stuff, two bags of the IV, IG treatments. And each one normally took about two to three hours, give or take, uh, for me. So... Um, again, like I was really quite bored to be honest with you, because I wasn't really in any pain, uh, so much. I mean, I I had all the symptoms and everything that I told you about, but I wasn't really painful. Um, it was more the anxiety and the worry and the, what am I going to do and how's this all going to work out kind of thing. And so throughout the week, you know, the, the, uh, the, the neurologist checked in on me. They had a physical therapist check in on me, a speech therapist come and check in on me. Various doctors would come in, let me know how it was going. Um, they, they continued to run blood tests every day to make sure I was handling everything all right. So, um, I spent a whole lot of time in my hospital bed watching television because, you know, I couldn't read because I couldn't focus on a book or my Kindle. Um, uh, you know, I couldn't do much on social media because I couldn't again, focus on my phone. Um, so there's not much to do, but watch TV and sleep. So for somebody who's normally go, go, go running, running, doing all kinds of stuff, I now have been pretty much immobilized for the last two weeks between at home and in the hospital and just wondering what's going to happen. I know how, how's this going to affect me and my future? How's this going to affect my launching my coaching business? How's this going to affect working with clients? How's this going to affect podcasting and blogging and, and, you know, interacting with my kids and my family and, you know, is this ever going to come back and all this type of stuff. And, you know, when you're alone with your thoughts, guys, for a long time, your mind wanders. You, You think about the worst, and think about the worst case scenario and you and you start to really rationalize blowing everything out of proportion and you don't think rationally. You're living in an emotional state where anxiety is taking over and running away with your thoughts. And that's kind of where I was for a while. And I did do, you know, as I said, I did a lot of grounding techniques, a lot of meditating, a lot of things to keep them in check. But when you're alone for that long in silence, alone with your thoughts, even the best intentions of not letting anxiety get to you sometimes don't always work. You know, anxiety is going to get to you a little bit here and there. And it did for me. And, you know, that's why I say you always have to be mindful of what anxiety is trying to do and trying to tell you. And if, and if anxiety does get to you, there's no shame in that. You know, you don't want to shame yourself and beat yourself up. You just have to understand that, that it's, it's something that happened. You learn from it and then you are better prepared for the next time that it happens. And so, you know, long story short, I spent the rest of the week in there in the hospital getting the treatments. Finally, Saturday comes. I'm able to go home. The doctor discharges me and says, the treatments are done. You need to follow up with a neurologist to see what comes next in terms of speech therapy, in terms of more medication. Um, Because really, guys, like with Guillain-Barre, short of the IVIG treatments and and or the blood transfusion, there's nothing else. Uh, Like there is no known cure for Guillain-Barre. It's something that just kind of runs its course uh, for some people, it affects them for years and years and years and decades. Some, For some people, they are literally on a ventilator for weeks or months until they're able to kind of function on their own again. For some, it takes them weeks, months, or years to be able to learn to walk again, guys. I mean, this, this is no joke. It's rare, but because there's so little known about it and it affects everybody differently, um, you know, it's it's hard to say how long the, the, the recovery is going to be. It's really depends on how early you catch it, what kind of treatment you get, how soon you get the treatment, um, you know, the need to rest and watch your diet and take care of yourself. And, um, you know, all these types of things play a role in it. And so I was able to get checked out, still very weak, but I managed to drive myself home. I had to prove to myself that I could at least drive myself home and be able to function on my own in some way. So I drove myself home, still feeling very weak, extremely weak, but I walked out of the hospital, guys. I walked out. Thank God I was able to walk out. And I got home, 
And fortunately, my my middle son had had um, he had my house cleaned for me, like like he cleaned it for me so I could come home to a clean house. Um, he got me some extra Gatorade to drink so I wouldn't get dehydrated. He got me some yogurt and things. I came home to the best case scenario of, you know, my son was checking in on me. Everything was was as nice and neat as it could be. And I was able to just rest. So I took the rest of that day um, and rested and. Um, the doctors told me I had to be off for the rest of that week or excuse me for the, for the, uh, remainder of the weekend and at least a few days next week. So, um, I pretty much spent from that Saturday night through the following Wednesday laying in bed, trying to recover. Um, my voice had still not really come back. I still wasn't able to speak much, still couldn't taste anything. Um, my eyes were still watery. Um, my legs were still pretty weak but they were feeling a little bit better. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't have any tingling in my arms or my hands, thank goodness. So it was really just a general idea that this was just going to take time and some physical therapy and speech therapy. They had kept me on prednisone for about another week yet. And, um, you know, some baby aspirin because, you know, to help keep, you know, the, uh, the circulation going to help avoid blood clots and whatnot. So because I wasn't able to get a whole lot of exercise, um, I managed to go back to um, my family doctor the following Tuesday and I had talked to my boss and of course, you know, I had to go on FMLA just to be safe because this was going to be a long recovery of a lot of, uh, you know, potentially missed work and other things because of appointments and whatnot and follow-ups. So since that time, um, I, have, I have seen my neurologist and I'm, I have started um, physical therapy and speech therapy to hopefully get my voice back and my ability to talk back to more normal again. Um, the physical therapy is mainly for my lower body. Um, I can't walk very far without getting weak. Um, you know, so I have to be very careful. I have to use the hand railing going up and down stairs. I can't get up too fast. Um, I have to watch what I eat. Um, I have to try and avoid getting sick lately because I'm still pretty weak in terms of my immune system. Um, I'm on a lot of, a lot more supplements right now. Um, I've since been taken off the prednisone and really now it's just a matter of how long is it going to be until I recover, fully recover. And as I said, um, it could take up to six months. Um, it could take longer, could take a little less, but it's really just a matter of the nerves regenerating and healing so that I'll regain motor control in my face, that I'll regain motor control. Um, you know, I mean, uh, excuse me, that, that, that the weakness will be gone in my lower body. So I'll be able to walk and for uh, extended periods of times, um, and really just time. Like that's really all it is with this, with this, uh, syndrome is time, time and exercise, proper diet, uh, taking the right supplements, following up with your neurologist, physical and speech therapy. That's really all there is. So, um, at this point, I think I just wanted to share that with you because, you know, the, the, the recovery is ongoing. As you can tell, the speech is not where it normally is, so I apologize if some things were, were, were difficult to understand. Um, whenever I talk for extended periods of time, the speech gets worse. The, the more tired I get, the longer I talk. So, so to report this podcast, which has gone on for about an hour now, it's actually taken me a lot longer because I've had to pause and rest and take a lot of drinks um, of water and Gatorade because my lips get dry, my tongue gets dry, my mouth gets dry, um, you know, my face gets tired. Um, you know, things of that nature. So, uh, when I, when I work now or stare at the computer or my phone or something, I have to wear tinted glasses over my reading glasses. I have to wear a visor or a hat to keep the sunlight and the glare from the lights down. Um, I have to use, um, dry eye drops for my eyes, which is a challenge in and of itself. Um, of course I have to watch my diet. Um, (laughs) and I guess on kind of a funny note there, or not really a funny note, but an interesting note. Um, one of the things that's happened is that I've lost a lot of weight, which I'm kind of happy to say, although the circumstances beyond losing weight has not been good. And I would not want to go through it again or wish anybody to go through this, but because of the fact of I've not been able to eat much and I'm and my diet for the last month and a half is consistent mainly of yogurt, jello, pudding, bananas, eggs, soft foods, things that I can kind of chew very easily and, or just gum and swallow. Um, so I've lost a lot of weight, which is a good thing, but again, not the way you would want to, but you know, I'm trying to find a bright side in this. And I think, you know, what, what I want to leave you with guys is this, is that you, you can be humming along in life. 
things are going kind of status quo. You're working, you got your family, your hobbies, your kids, your spouse, things that you do. And then all of a sudden, sometimes something can just happen. It pops up out of nowhere. Uh, similar to trauma recovery. You're going about life and sometimes a memory comes up. You get a trigger and you get kind of set back, kind of pushed down, pushed sideways a little bit. And you have to kind of pause and reassess, figure out what's going on, how's the best way to deal with this, understand it. And sometimes that process isn't just a couple of minutes. Sometimes it takes days or weeks to really kind of get a handle on what's going on and kind of get your, get, get your sea legs again. And so I just want to encourage you guys that this whole thing has really caused me to pause and understand the really, really important need of taking care of myself, of cutting out the junk and the snacking and eating properly, of getting to the doctor sooner whenever I don't feel well, of getting a lot of rest, getting proper rest, of easing the stress and anxiety, of doing more mindfulness and more meditation and things that are calming and things that are self-care. You know, when you're stuck in a hospital and you don't know what's going on, you know, you, you don't know whether you're going to live or die. And to be honest with you, there were times when I wasn't sure I was going to live or die because they didn't know what was going on. You know, they can tell you, yes, we have treatments for this and that and the other thing. But until you know for sure, it's a scary thing. And it's something that you really just don't always know how to handle until you've gone through it. And so, you know, I just want to encourage you guys to to understand that things in life are going to happen. Setbacks are going to happen. And, you know, for a trauma survivor, setbacks are going to happen, too. Things are going to come up. And sometimes that can be uh, related to your trauma and something emotional and, um, you know, part of a mental health challenge. And other times it's physical and, you know, in terms of Guillain-Barre, which is an autoimmune disease or syndrome. And, you know, whatever the case is, whatever you're facing, I just want to encourage you, don't give up, guys. Keep pushing forward. Believe in yourself. Keep trying. Don't give up hope. Cling on to what you've been through, to what you know you can handle. Cling to the understanding that you are stronger than you believe you're more resilient than you think and that you can handle what's coming and that no matter what it is never ever give up hope don't stop believing in yourself hold on to those that are that are close to you that are safe people and help them you know uh, enlist the help of them to help you when you need them in your dark times because nobody can go through life alone you know we as humans we are social creatures we're not meant to live life alone we're not meant to be just, you know, kind of going through day-to-day things or monumental struggles by ourselves. We need the support of others. So find those safe people in your life and cling to them. Ask them to help you because the support I've gotten from family has been extremely helpful. You know, they've cooked dinners for me. They've checked in on me. They picked up medications. Um, they've encouraged me and just sat and talked with me and didn't judge me. Um, you know, I feel really self-conscious about my voice right now. I feel self-conscious about how weak I am. Self-conscious that I have to use a handicap placard when I go to the store because I can't walk very far without taking a break and getting tired. And so, you know, the, you know, if you look at me and you don't know me, you probably wouldn't think there was really much of anything wrong um, until you talked to me and maybe heard my voice and, you know, realized I can't laugh or smile yet. But I mean, generally speaking on the outside, you probably wouldn't think there was anything wrong. And that's so often the case with an invisible illness. Um, you know, parts of Guillain-Barre are invisible, um, you know, again, depending on how it, it, it affects, you know, the, each person specifically. But, you know, I've learned a lot about myself this last month and a half. I'm learning a lot about myself as, as life goes on now. And th- this has been a learning experience for me. It's been something that I want to be able to, to help others with. You know, when I was laying in that hospital room, I kept thinking, I wonder how I can use this to help other people. I wonder how many other people have Guillain-Barre or other other autoimmunes that maybe can benefit from my story. It's not that I'm trying to toot my own horn or that I'm proud or, you know, that I think I'm some special snowflake, but it's that I want to use this experience to try and help other people to be encouraged and to know that there's hope and that to never give up on themselves and to keep reaching and keep trying and keep fighting because no matter what, you are worth fighting for more than you can ever possibly know. And, you know, I think that's pretty much it for right now. I I just want to leave you guys with that too. If you're struggling with something right now, emotionally trauma related, if you're struggling with a physical illness right now, an autoimmune, a chronic illness, you know, I know where you're coming from. I've been there as a trauma survivor. I'm there right now with you um, as someone with autoimmune. And I want to just encourage you to really be kind to yourself, to receive the support that's out there, 
to find those support groups, to enlist the group help of safe people, and to really just never, ever, ever feel like there's no hope. Because there's hope out there, and there's people who have been where you are, and people who understand what it means to be a survivor in whatever aspect of a survivor that you are. So thanks, guys, for listening. Um, I appreciate it. Um, again, for, I apologize for anybody who um, was unable to maybe understand parts of it. Uh, this is my life right now, and I'm working through it, and I'm not going to. I'm doing my best to not be ashamed, and to not beat myself up for what's going, what I'm going through. But I'm doing my best to learn from it and work through it, and hopefully come out on the other side stronger than ever. So uh, thanks everybody for listening. I appreciate it. Um, if you like this podcast, please give it a thumbs up rate it, um, you know, leave, leave a review on iTunes or something. I would appreciate it. Whatever platform you're listening on. Um, I always appreciate your feedback and your support so much. You guys are amazing and, uh, keep me in your thoughts and prayers. I'm always thinking about each one of you amazing survivors out there who are, who are sharing and interacting with me on a daily basis. I appreciate it so much and I'm honored to be on this journey with you and I will talk to you all soon. Be safe and rock on. Thanks for listening to beyond your past part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Information shared on this podcast should not be considered as a substitute for professional medical help or mental health counseling. If you've ever considered working with a certified coach, or if you simply have questions about how working with a coach can benefit you, just head on over to beyondyourpast.com for more information and to schedule your free introductory session. We'll work together to figure out what's holding you back so that you can realize your full potential and discover the authentic you. Remember, you are worth it. Achieving your goals and waking up each day knowing that you can handle what's coming and thrive is something that everyone deserves. So take that first step and contact me today and let's do this. Talk to you soon.